and who gave us his righteousness before you. And so as we open your word tonight and as we continue to learn, Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for our family. I pray that each one of us would be patient, that we would listen, that we would not think so much about everything, Lord, that we would just be concerned about being prayerful for one another. Lord, that we would take time out to be in your word, that we might grow in the knowledge of grace. And as we continue in this letter tonight, Father, I thank you for the gift that it is to us, your people, to whom you have given to Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name, amen. Well, let's turn to James chapter 1 and read together the first few verses. Verse 18 again. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, there's a lot there. Remember, I have divided the letter into four different categories. The first category being trials unto maturity. The second category being maturity into love in the midst of trials. The third category being love with trials with each other. In other words, we have trials within the church. And then fourthly and finally, and I have a fifth one, but I'll save it to the end. Fourth main division is living with each other in the world, being not of the world, with eyes that look to the sovereignty of God. And I know these are not succinct little things, and they change from week to week in wording or order. But this is the crux of what we're doing. We're going to continue for the first 18 verses over the next month or so to look at what James is instructing, to listen so that we may be complete, because this is what he's telling us. Over in verses 2 through 4, it says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials.'" Uh, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking in nothing. So with that, we've gone over that the last few weeks. We know that James is saying that all the trials, as we look all the way up to verse 17, are part of God's good and perfect gift. And all of the trials that we experience are to teach us steadfastness and to test and produce steadfastness in our faith. What does that faith look to? Faith looks to Christ Jesus. Faith always looks to the promises and the proclamation of God concerning redemption in Christ for his elect. So then as steadfast fastness has its full effect, we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that is just a recapitulation in sequence that James uses there to say we'll be made perfect. Now, this is not a perfection in this life. This is not a sinlessness. This means that we are lacking in nothing. We have everything. It reiterates that or it is similar to that which Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then giving that description as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so when we hear these two apostles speak, they are definitely congruent. They are cohesive. They are holding fast to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. They are not waving to and from and placating to the, to the nature of humanity, but they are proclaiming the reality of God's power and salvation. Now, last week we talked about several things in regard to joy resting in the fact that Jesus stands in his promises. We talked about joy in the midst of trials and that what steadfastness looks like. We talked about the opposite of steadfastness and that we oftentimes just want to throw our hands up and quit because of the trials of life. Because we fail to trust in the Lord as we've trusted in him by his own gift to, to believe that Christ is sufficient for our salvation, for our righteousness. We, in the same type of faith, give given by the Father, are to trust in His promises in the day-to-day provisions of life, and most importantly, in the trials of life. And the reason that we want to quit is because it's the natural thing to do. But the reason that we don't quit is because God is sovereign in keeping us. He holds us. He does not let us go. He cannot let us go. He has given us to His Son, so that in that we are perfected by the power of God. So we're still in this mindset of Understanding that trials build maturity, build growing, build steadfastness, which is completeness. And then the next very simple question is, how am I supposed to understand this? How am I supposed to apply this? What is it in my life that I am supposed to know or do in order to obey the command in verse 4? Let steadfastness have its full effect. In the midst of trials, rejoice that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so if you look at verse 5, I think James answers that question for us. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to seek wisdom. Now the word wisdom has been thrown around in every culture throughout the history of humanity, 
no matter where you look, whether it be an atheist annals or the annals of world religion or the cults or evangelical cults or whatever it may be, or philosophers or the like, you will always find the idea of wisdom. And wisdom in a simple sense can be defined culturally, uh, pretty much holistically in every culture. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Now, that's a practical sense, because we also know that Paul says that Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. So there's a spiritual sense in which wisdom makes no sense pragmatically. There's a spiritual sense in which Christ as our wisdom makes no sense in any application, because it's not about what we do, it's about who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. So that is the foundation, that is the top, that is the bread pieces of holding together the sandwich of life, is that Christ is our wisdom, he is our righteousness. He is everything. All things have been given to him. We have been given to him. And he has laid down his life for us and credited to our account before the father of righteousness and the father of justice and the father of wrath, his righteousness. So what kind of wisdom are we looking for then? Well, there's a specific context. Context. It's James is talking specifically about the wisdom in the trials of life. Not the wisdom about Every little thing, what shoes to put on, what hairstyle to go with. I mean, I don't necessarily think those things take wisdom, though wisdom is a part of that. Because we know that certain types of clothing, certain types of hair, certain types of things can, can mess up a particular, or can impact, not necessarily mess up, but can impact culturally certain elements of our lives. I mean, if I tattoo a nude person on my face, then I probably won't be customer service front line. However, you know, <laughs> times are changing. Who knows? But that takes wisdom, but that's not the wisdom James is talking about, though it certainly is salt in the same manner. The wisdom here is, how do I stand steadfast under trials? How am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of suffering? What particular suffering? Well, there are three types of suffering that James will talk about. The suffering that comes from being just part of the world. Well, four now. Just being part of the world. Because of the fall, all things and all living creatures are subject to the fall. Subject to sin, subject to suffering. So as human beings, we're going to be subject to suffering. We have good days, we have bad days, we have healthy days, we have unhealthy days, we have joyful days, we have depressing days, and it's going to always be. But secondly, these Christians here, these Jewish people who were in Christ, they were suffering because of Christ. They were suffering because they were identified being in Christ. They had forsaken and walked away from Judaism completely, the way of life, the culture, the, the impact of what it had, everything that, that, that was just a shadow of the gospel, these people had been given eyes to see that it was a dead work. It was not righteousness, but that Christ alone, all these things pointed to him as the fulfillment of God's righteous promise of eternal life to the elect. It wasn't about being Jewish. It was about being in Christ. And so because of that, these Christians were suffering greatly. They had been removed from their homes. They had lost their families. They had been ostracized from their businesses. They had been ostracized from their communities, from their state, from their country. They were hated by the government. They were hated by their neighbors. They were hated by other religions. They were sought after and killed by, 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 other, by other leaders of certain uh, provinces, and, and etc. And so they were really just hanging out in the wilderness, moving from place to place to escape persecution. So that's the second type of trial that they had. The third type of trial that these people had were the trial of in, the internal trials. The internal trials of their own mind. The depression, the, the, the fear, the doubt, 
The things that, that all of us sort of stick around with and in are internally, but then when somebody says, how's it going? Oh, everything's great. Everything's fine. Oh, it's awesome. We love to thumbs up the world, but in reality, that thumb is sticking us in the eye. So we have these internal sufferings. We suffer. We know that we have lost a lot of things because of Christ, but we also understand that it is joyful as the one who finds the treasure in the field and covers it up quickly and goes with joy and sells all that he has so that he might come by the field for the priceless treasure that he has found. That is what God gives us. Understanding in comparison to the world and all of its treasures and everything that we could have and all the relationships that we have, though they are very dear to us in the context and the comparison of who Christ is and what he has given to us, all those things are nothing. But it is still a trial. It's not easy. It's not like we just stand up and go, oh, well. And the fourth type of trial is the trial within the body itself. The trial between two believers, different types of believers, different types of personalities, different types, and I'm saying different types of gospels, but I'm saying different types of personalities, different ideologies, different philosophical ways of looking at things, different approaches to logic, different attitudes toward different types of people. That's specifically one of the things that James deals with, people who felt like they were better in a, in a, in a sense than other people because of their stature in life, though they were all together in the dispersion. They were all together as objects of mercy when Christ died on the cross. They were all one body, one bride. God is not a polygamist. He takes one bride. That's it. Gives it to his son. So these are the trials. These are the types of trials that take place. And all sorts of trials, I think every trial that we could experience falls into one of those categories. So the question is, how am I to to stay joyful and steadfast in all these types of trials. What about the fear of even the unknown? Well, it takes wisdom, doesn't it? What am I to do? How am I to act? What am I to say? How am I to answer? Where am I to go? How long should I endure? To what end am I to turn the other cheek? There's always a question. And the Word of God teaches us that this wisdom is ours for the asking. It teaches us that it is concerning specifically wisdom of how to remain steadfast in trials because we are not just naturally or even supernaturally granted wisdom. We don't wake up in the morning and go, poof, I know exactly what I need to do. Oh, my goodness, I, I wish people would just ask me and I'll tell them how they should handle things. You know, Some people have that mindset. They are wrong. But this wisdom comes in several ways. First, We need to see here is what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, because not all the times in every trial do we lack wisdom. We have been given wisdom for some things. But there may be some other things that we lack wisdom. We don't have the wisdom. We don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? The Bible says, if you lack wisdom, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Let him ask God. I mean, how do we ask God? We pray. So wisdom is given through prayer, and I'm going to talk about 10 or 11, 12, maybe 12 things, top of my head, I'm thinking, yeah, about 12 things, maybe more, that come in the context of God-given wisdom and how it is received and how, is it, how it is understood. But here, the simple instruction is this, I don't know what to do. Lord, help me have wisdom. I need to know. Father, empower me. Lord, give me the path. Now, the other part of that is, 
We ask God, and we do that through prayer, but how does God answer our prayers? How does God specifically give us the detailed answer of how to deal with certain things? What's the first answer? The Word of God. The Spirit of God does not work outside the Word of God, for the Word of God is living and breathing. The Spirit of God is the one who operates in the illuminating of the Word to the people of God. The Spirit of the, of, of the Lord is the one who grants faith. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who gives wisdom. And the Word of God is the source of that wisdom. So we pray, then we read. We pray, and then we read. We pray, and then we seek the Scripture. But you know what a lot of our prayers are? A lot of our prayers are Google searches. We're praying to the God of all the world around the Internet rather than to the God of Scripture. I need to know what to do here. Let me Google the circumstances. Where in the Bible does it say, how do I handle this? Where in the Bible does it say, what am I supposed to do here? And what you end up with is a bunch of blogs and a bunch of weblogs and a bunch of videos of other people's opinion on what God has shown them to do in certain circumstances, and you are not receiving the spirit of God's wisdom. It is not of God. Even if God gave them the answer, it is not the answer he's given you. Because the answer must come from Scripture. The peace must come by being in Scripture. So we ask God, and He gives it by the Word. But there's a way in which God gives wisdom. Look at, look at what James says, the latter part of verse 5. God gives generously to all who ask without reproach. So let's read that in together. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So here is the manner in which God gives wisdom. It comes from the Word. That's a given. If we want to debate that, I have no time for that debate. Because the Scripture is all needed, all we need in the context of that. So that our relationships as the body of Christ, when we seek counsel from one another, it needs to be contextual counsel. It needs to be, this is what the Word of God says here. This is how the Scripture teaches us here. And all the New Testament letters give us wisdom on how to handle certain things. James is going to give, by the Spirit of God, wisdom to these Jews, to these Christians, who were lacking wisdom in every aspect of their lives. <laughs> They're living notoriously. And they are not doing that which is pleasing to the Lord. And he's going to correct them. And he's going to give them wisdom. He's going to give them wisdom. So this wisdom is given by God through prayer from the Word. And this wisdom is what will give us joyful steadfastness. Then we will lack nothing. We won't be wondering, what are we supposed to do? We will not lack in this. But he gives generously. Now what is generously? What does generously mean? Hey, Dad, can I have a little bit of money? Just take all the money. It's, you know, and you may think, well, that was sort of odd that you read so much of the first chapter of Ephesians there. Well, i got a whole lot of other first chapters to read. I mean, I could read, I could read all certain, a, a lot of things, and I will before I'm done tonight. I'll just, I'll just go to, to 2 Timothy. I'll go to Philippians 1, 1 Thessalonians, uh, James chapter 3. I mean, let's go over there to James chapter 3 real quick. Look at, look at this. Verse 13, James asks some, asks some questions, doesn't he? He said, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is it? And then he answers, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So there's some illustrative things about wisdom, and one of them, and this is not today's sermon, it's a couple of months away, but one of them is it's meekness. But if you have a bitter jealousy, what's the antithesis of meek wisdom? 
If you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is, and this is where I get this all the time, and people say, you're being too harsh. It is demonic, James says. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of grace and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. See, there's the answer. There's the sermon. We're done. Let's go. That's the answer. Let's unpack it for a minute. Just in this sense that God gives generously. God gives us the instruction that we need in order to please Him wisely in the context of trials, whether they be trials from the government, whether they be trials because of the faith, whether they be trials in life, whether they be trials in finances, whether they be trials in our own minds, whether they be trials in our body, trials in relationships, trials within the church, or trials anywhere else in the cosmos. Maybe you took a rocket ship to Mars and you've got some problems. God is there too. And His wisdom will carry you there. should have asked beforehand and you got on the ship. <laughs> But you have, and now you need wisdom to get through the trial. God gives generously. That means he doesn't, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't sprinkle a little bit of wisdom, cracker bits on the, on the floor, and expect you to lick them up and get a taste for it, and then watch what you're going to do, and then sprinkle little tidbits. It's not like E.T. being led to the closet, for those of you who know that movie from 1982, with the Reese's Pieces. It's not like the cartoons where, you know, you lead the creature into the cage by putting down bits of... This is not how God gives wisdom. God gives generously. Everything He's got, He just gives it to you. you got to ask. What are you asking for? Wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Wisdom to stand steadfast in trials. Why? So that I can rejoice. Why do I have to rejoice? Because that is your thankful worship to the Lord Almighty. There is no other type. To the praise of His glorious grace. Thank you, Lord. Romans 1, there are those who worship in thankfulness and those who don't thank God. You see, Romans 12, same thing. He gives generously. And what's the other thing that the Scripture says how God gives? Without reproach. Without reproach. What's that mean? I mean, God is not going, you dumb, stupid child. I've got to tell you this again. Are you dumb as a bag of potato chips? Do you have the intelligence of a hammer? God is not scolding us to give us wisdom. He generously gives, joyfully gives, lovingly gives, and we're not caught in the midst of should have known better. That's what it means without reproach. God's not going to bring reproach upon you for asking for wisdom. He's not going to get on to you because you didn't know the answer. He's not going to discipline you because you didn't remember you ask and he gives generously that's what a loving father does that's what our father does now the next thing out of most people's mouth when i talk about these things in midst of trials is they say well i've done that i have prayed and i have prayed and i have prayed and i just don't know what to do and i still feel at, at despair and fear and everything else well what is despair but unbelief what is fear but unbelief what is doubt but unbelief? So James answers that. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith 
with no doubting. With no doubting. Isn't that crazy? How in the world are we to do that with no doubting? Well, almost all of us would stand and say, you know what, I do not doubt the work of Christ on my behalf. I do not doubt that my righteousness is imputed to me. I do not doubt that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and I do not doubt that the promises of the Word of God are yes and amen, but I don't know what to do, and I don't think God can help me. I hope He helps me. I wish that He'd help me, you see. That's what we do. That's what James Tippins does. That's what all of you, if you were honest, that's what we do. That's what we do. And so God, in His infinite mercy, the Holy Spirit has preached to us that we shouldn't doubt through the letter of James so that we would be reminded and not chastised. Because God's going to give us this wisdom not to make us feel guilty about not knowing and remembering that He's the sovereign God of all things, but He's going to patiently and kindly remind us and then we will, we will go, oh yeah, that's right. How many times do we need the reminder? Every second of our lives. I've never met a man in my youth who could teach me James correctly. Because the book of James for most people who claim to be in Christ is a scary letter. But the book of James for the beloved of God is an encouraging letter. I have been so encouraged studying this letter again that it has healed my soul. Because God has given me wisdom without reproach. And it took a while because I kept asking, doubting. Saying, Lord, give me this. And I read in the Word, and then I look away and I try it on my own. Isn't that what we do? That's what we do. Wisdom is given. Wisdom is received. Wisdom is given by God and wisdom is received from God and it is received in Christ. Christ is our wisdom. So as Christ and as God the Spirit and as God the Father works to show us wisdom through the Word, we rest in an uncanny way. We rest with a peace that surpasses all understanding. Wisdom is given and received by faith. Let him do it without doubting. Don't ask thinking, this is not going to be given to me. I'm never going to know. That's a cry of despair. It's not a request of God. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Why? Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 7 says, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord He's double-minded and, and unstable in all his ways. Wow. What does that do? Why would James write that? Why would God the Spirit pen that through the Apostle James? Because he wants to humble us. He wants, us to show, he wants to show us that we are unstable people. But that we are standing on a stable foundation. Jesus Christ is steadfast. Jesus Christ cannot be moved. The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is immovable. 
So we're reminded about these things through the learning of the word and the continual reading of the word. And together, when we are all standing in our hearts and minds truthfully, without doubting on the foundation of Christ, we are not unstable because we are resting in the one who is stable. But when we doubt, what are we doing? We're not believing that Christ is stable. We're thinking that we must stabilize ourselves. And so what is that going to do? It's going to reveal the very stability that we have, which is nothing. In my flesh, I have no stability. I used to pride myself in my ability to multitask in my mind. God took it. I used to pride myself in my ability to remember everything I read. God took it. I used to pride myself in my ability to do things physically. God is taking that by the second. I can't even see anymore. God's taking it. Why? Because that's the natural order of things. What's changed? I'm dying. My body is dying. I don't have, a, I don't have any doctor telling me I'm terminal, but I know that I'm terminal. I know that I will not live forever in this flesh. But I have eternal life in Christ. And what, I'm yet, what I am going to be has not yet been shown to me. But I know that I will be like Him. Imperishable. Unfading. This is it. And, and if you don't think that you think I'm just imparting some weird philosophy or poetry, beloved, just look at verses 9, 10, 11. He talks about the lowly brother boasting in his exaltation, the rich boasting in his humiliation, because just like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fed in the midst of his pursuits. James Tippins will fail when he's standing on his own two feet. As this week has shown me, I will fall. This little boot makes me about three inches taller if I stand on it. And so when I'm thinking that I need wisdom and I ask the Lord for wisdom and then I take it back into my own hands, then I'm putting my trust in my foundation, the foundation of my flesh, not the foundation that is immovable, unshakable, inseparable. Beloved, and that's, that's our lives, isn't it? I can juggle four things. Can't juggle five. I can't juggle two. But I can juggle four things. Balls. Round things, blocks, can't do the knives and all that kind of stuff. Never had the gall. But only for so long. You can't keep that up. Somebody throws something at you, the master jugglers can drop stuff. Beloved, we don't want to be in charge of our own wisdom. We need to see Christ. This is by faith. And sometimes we find ourselves doubting because we prayed yesterday and today we don't have an answer. <laughs> we must be patient, beloved. Anyone who says that God answers them and gives them wisdom the second they pray is lying to you. That's a self-righteous statement. They're saying that God answers them in their timing. No, God answers in His timing. Part of trusting in the wisdom of God is waiting on the wisdom of God. And until we know, we don't do. Until we know, we don't go. Until we know, we don't speak. Until we know, we don't respond. We need wisdom. When we think of the wisdom literature of the Scripture, what does it say? Keep your mouth shut. Keep your ears open. Stop talking. Listen. Ask questions and inquire. Be reasonable. 
Don't tell everybody what you know. Shut your mouth and listen to what other people are trying to say. You see, it's always wait, wait, just wait, just wait. 30 years Jesus hid in obscurity. We can't wait 30 minutes at a fast food restaurant without losing our minds. God gives and we receive wisdom in His timing for the trials of life by the Word, through prayer, with patience, without doubting that in due time, God will give us wisdom and it will bring about the completion, the wholeness, the fullness of the wisdom of Christ in our lives in trials. And what does it ultimately do? And by the way, that was 12 points. You, you didn't hear them, but in my mind, those were 12 things that, that are true about how wisdom is given and received. The results of wisdom in the context of James' letter and even and by Paul's and Peter's and everybody else's is patient love for one another. As God is patient with his people, so should we be. As God is patient with us to give us regenerative truth by the Spirit in his timing, so should we be patient with unbelievers who have possibly may be our elect brothers and sisters. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we all know these texts, right? We all know these texts. We know what, what, what Paul says to this young boy. I mean, it's, it's just what it is. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's the, it's the text I was in on Sunday night at Theology on Call. We see that in verse 1 that there are a lot of things that are antithetical to the wisdom of God here. Understand this, Paul says, in the last days are going to come times of difficulty. Four, people are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money. They're going to be proud. They're going to be arrogant, abusive, and disobedient to parents. They're going to be very ungrateful, and they're going to be unholy. They're going to be heartless, unpeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. They're going to be treacherous and reckless, swollen with pride and conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they may have the appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. Paul tells Timothy to avoid these people. Because what they do is they wreck households. And eventually, just as Jonas and John were supposed Moses and were found out, eventually these people who lack wisdom will tell on themselves. And everybody who joins their bandwagon will tell on them. They will all be seen. In Philippians, Paul gives a, a, a focused look at wisdom. What does he say there? In Philippians chapter 1, he says these words. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says in verse 6, a very powerful statement. I am sure of this. I am confident of this. That he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with affection of Christ, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
wisdom so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Same thing. Second, or First Thessalonians chapter 5. This is a self-serving text. So now concerning the times and all that, Paul says, where am I? I wanted to go here. Oh, verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. That means warn them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ for you. And he goes on and talks over and over and over again. Second Peter talks about steadfastness as well. We see that continually. I'm just, I'm just showing, I'm showing the comparisons or, or the continuation, the, the cohesion, the cohesiveness of the apostles' teaching on this matter. These are the epitome of, this is the epitome of wisdom. Look, verse 14 of chapter 3 of Second Peter says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory now and to the day of eternity forever. Amen. So God is trusted by faith that He grants us to believe and the promises that he has proclaimed to us concerning salvation. So faith in Christ for salvation is also equally graciously granted to us to have faith in the wisdom of God. That he will grant us wisdom. That we will live out our lives in this way so that we might be beneficial to the kingdom. God is trusted in trials equally as he is trusted in salvation. The manner of faith in God's promises of eternal life is the same manner of faith that also rests in the promises of the Word of God and practical things. And both of them wane, don't they? But to not trust in one is truly to say in a real way, I don't trust in the first. So what do we do when we're faithless? Where is our hope? In the faithfulness of Christ who cannot deny himself. Paul tells that to Timothy. So the Spirit through wisdom grants the grace to rest in the sufficiency of God's power under trial? And then the question again is always the same. What trials? What trials are we looking at here if we go back to the book of James? Well, I've already answered that. I was going to close with that, but I open with that. All trials. But the wisdom teaches us, the wisdom of God teaches us to understand the foundation, understand the immovable gospel of grace that is sovereign and free that we walk then according to the promises of God found in the word the same place and the same revelation that teaches us the relationship that we have with God by grace in the finished work of Christ so if we do not walk as God's word instructs us in these trials then in all intents and for all intents and purposes it's like saying we don't trust him 
Because his promises are yes and amen. And so, in asking God for wisdom, we should not be caught off guard when the Lord does not give us immediate resolution. We should not be caught off guard when we don't have immediate peace in our circumstances. We should not be caught off guard when the restoration does not happen in trials. We should rest in the sufficiency and the joy of knowing that the trials will continue to come, but that in these trials we are never put away. That we are never, ever put away. Colossians comes to mind as Paul would write these things. And he says to the church of Colossae, he says, I pray, let me find it so that I don't misquote it, that I may fill up, I rejoice, verse 24 of chapter 1, in my sufferings for your sake. See, this is the wisdom of God Paul asked for and was granted. Was Paul always steadfast? No. He labored over his trials. He labored over his fears. He labored over his flesh. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister. He became a minister to meet the needs of the church. And what kind of minister? To what end? From what foundation was Paul a minister? According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, that is the mystery hidden of ages, for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, to you, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, is this not the same thing James is saying? Rejoice, beloved, in all trials. Rejoice. Don't you know that the testing of your faith, that trials produce testing, and testing produces steadfastness, and steadfastness produces the completeness of your joy, the completeness of the foundation of what Christ is in you, who is the hope of your glory? And ultimately one day as we mature, we will all ultimately stand perfect anew in Him as we now stand perfect and righteous in Him before the Father. Paul says in verse 29 of chapter 1 of Colossians, and I'll close, he says, For this I toil, for this I work, for this I struggle with all, and I love this text, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, with all his power that he powerfully works within me. So is it up to us to find the power of God? No, it's God's power. So when we ask for wisdom, when we find ourselves doubting, we must just continue to wait in the wisdom of God that he will empower us to withstand and steadfast because he will see us through. Though it may seem as though we are messing up God's sovereign plan, we are not messing up his plan. We are walking in the hand of God and cannot leave it. And Paul says, I work and struggle with all of the energy of God that he powerfully works within me. And I could preach a whole another hour on the power of God in me 
you and one another. But beloved, Paul's labors were for the saints. James' labors were for the saints. John's labors were for the saints. Our labors are for one another. Our trials help one another. And most of all, our trials are opportunities to thank God in the midst of all of them for the sake of His glorious name. Let's pray. We thank You, Lord, for the teaching of James. We know that it is not James, except that it is His Word and His personality coming through the page. But, Father, we know that the truth therein comes from You. And that God the Spirit has written this text for us through Him. Help us to hear what it is that You've taught us. And not to try to worm our way around the simple application of praying for You to give us wisdom. And then trusting for You to work that wisdom in us in the time that You've allotted. Lord, help us to rest in the finished work of Christ. Not to be restless, but to be still. We are not the commissioned soldiers of your justice. We are the sheep of your, she- of, your pa- of, your she- of your pasture. We are the ones whom the great shepherd has laid down his own life for. So God, our great Father, holy in all your ways. Lord, let your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven this day. And give us the wisdom to wait upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.